Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Whose working class parents, they immigrated from a small village in the Carpathian Mountains, what is now current day Slovenia. Slovakia, Slavos. <laughs> <laughs> it's something. Oh, that was good. Slovenia, Slovakia. Awesome <laughs> incorporated. incorporated. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where, that's where it was going. I'll do that over again. <laughs> yeah, he his first job out of school was at Schott's Brewery. <laughs> he had to take the gloves off the bottles. He did. Um, he did. Hey everyone, it's Elliot. And Todd. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar, an ongoing conversation about pop culture and iconic design. Today, we continue talking about the formation of the pop art scene. And the introduction of its greatest superstar. He made the lowbrow highbrow. And along the way, agitated a lot of people. So let's raise our glasses to the master manipulator himself back here in the bar. Hey everyone, welcome back to the bar, and today our bar is a shiny, glittery dance club full of mirrors, smoke lasers, and a booming four-on-the-floor beat of disco. No glasses to wash tonight, folks. We're turning the champagne bottles straight up about the guy that brought us here. Wow. Okay. So that'd be our buddy Andy Warhol? Yeah. You know him, you love him. We've talked about him for Mm -hmm. the past recent episodes, and... You've been listening to a series about Andy Warhol, his influence, all about the factory scene. Um, But really, it's about a shy, sickly kid whose working-class parents immigrated from a small village in the Carpathian Mountains, which is now today's Slovakia. Uh, And he ended up becoming the art world's most ambitious showman and ringmaster. Yeah, Ringmaster. I mean, he was really, what, the Grand Marshal of the 1960s Freak Parade? That's a pretty good way to say it. He certainly was a collector of, of the Freaks, Yeah, right? float builder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, whatever yeah. you want Organizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plan the parade route. Yeah. Concession stand. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> yeah, the story is pretty vast, uh, both about his struggles with fame uh, the hangers on and, of course, wigs of questionable taste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's recenter a little bit for people who may not have listened to an episode in a while or may not have 
caught up on where we are to date here. So I want to revisit a word that we used in the beginning of this season. Okay. You'd mentioned that Andy really helped the creative world. And by creative world, I mean pop culture, but also like advertising and and sort of these industries that were tangential to the art world, quote unquote. Um, Right. He... He made everything untethered, to use your word, right? Yeah, yeah, good word. If you haven't listened to the beginning part of this season and some of the episodes that led up to where we are now, do yourself a favor and go back and do that. And even to lay the groundwork a little bit more, um, I would suggest going back and listening to our season about the beats so that we can understand the foundation that pop culture um, and pop art were being built on in the 60s. Yeah, good record, Elliot. Um, because we found that there uh, is a natural connection from the beats mm-hmm. uh, into the, the pop scene. Uh, and then, of course, the pop scene just explodes in all different directions uh, with a lot of things going to uh, Andy Warhol. All right, so, Elliot, let me start with a question for you today. Oh, man, right, more bar trivia. Okay. More bar trivia. And you're, you're, you're crazy good at this. All right. All right. Can you guess the top pop song in the U.S. on April 26, 1977? I'll give you some choices, actually. Okay. Um, I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. Mm-hmm. You're the one that I want by Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta. Um, both great songs. And Southern Nights by Glenn Campbell. Ooh. I know. Range right there. That's, that's toughy. Let's see. So I was a little bit over four years old at this point. So I'm trying to think of when I was four years old and change what I was listening to. Um, what was lighting up the dance floor for four-year-old Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> all right. Cartoons. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Looney Tunes wasn't part of this. Yeah, um, right, right. The no. Three Little Bops wasn't part of this. Um, okay, so I am going to... I'm going to use my bar trivia process of elimination theory here to arrive at my answer. Okay. All right. Okay. I'd love to hear... I, me and the listeners would love to hear your theory on okay. this. Okay. So in my, I mean, I Will Survive, that's pretty well known. That's a disco hit, right? Like yeah, that's, yeah. you know, that's, that's like, I would say you could play that now and people would mm-hmm. know what that is. People have heard of that. Right. It's been sampled, whatever. Right. Um, you're the one that I want. That's Grease, right? So that's the Grease soundtrack. So Olivia Newton-John, John Travolta, or as we could refer to them collectively, Olivia Newton-John Travolta. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to say two Johns in a row. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to me, again, that's that's from a musical. That's from a movie. Like, I don't think they were playing that in discos. Um but you know what? I'm going to go with, I think those two, first two have more in common than they do mm. in terms of being different. And to mm-hmm. me, the third one is the outlier. And mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that it's the outlier, I am going to go with number three. If I remember correctly, I think number three was also a cover, wasn't it? I don't know that. I think it was a cover song. Like, I don't think 
Glenn Campbell was the original singer of this song. And so if that's the case, like the fact that it's different and the fact that there might have been a built-in audience already for it, if it's a Uh cover... Uh-huh. I'm going with number three. So that's my logic. Does that that's make sense? That's your final answer. Yeah. It does, yeah. And your strategy and your logic is correct. It was Southern Nights <laughs> um, by Glenn Campbell, right. which was the number one pop song in the U.S. on April 26, 1977. Okay. Can, can now, I need to ask you a question. All right. Because right, right. there's probably a question that a lot of the listeners have as well. Uh, why did you choose that date? Okay. I'm glad you asked. I picked that date because that was the night that the legendary Studio 54 in Manhattan opened its doors for the very first time to some debauchery-loving dancers. (laughs) Okay, yeah, (laughs) Studio 54, pretty famous. Uh, It's had documentaries made about it. It's had movies made about it. Oh, you'll appreciate this. Actually, there was a guy I went to college with who had a, a bit part in the in the movie 54 with Mike Myers. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, maybe I have a weird, um, like, 12 generations removed connection yeah. to Studio 54 yeah. somehow. But, um, but wait a second. So Studio 54, so it's an oddball name for a disco, right? Yeah. Didn't this thing start as a... TV studio or a radio something like the studio name it wasn't about like they inherited that right like they didn't like just pull that out of the air right Uh, that's yeah uh, partially um, but you're right yeah it was a studio it has a pretty interesting um, history too so it was located at 254 West 54th Street oddly enough okay well that's the 54 right Right, right. And in Midtown Manhattan. And um, CBS had owned it. They called it actually when they owned it Studio 52. Because (laughs) back back then, yeah, not to throw off bill collectors or anything like that. But (laughs) back in the day, CBS named theaters based on the order they were purchased. Mm, Okay. So, yeah. and um, I actually love your... Your idea of throwing off bill collectors, though. Oh, that's, <laughs> yeah. not, that's not us. You must mean the people up the street. <laughs> oh, you want to go to stu- to 54. <laughs> yeah. We're Studio 52. <laughs> and they're wearing fake mustaches and like big <laughs> right. Groucho glasses. Right. And then they're all running out the back door. <laughs> <laughs> that could work. You know, that could totally work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so... It was uh, it was a studio. It was multi-purpose studio, of course, um, like a lot of TV studios were. Mm-hmm. And they would use it. Um, they bought it in the late '40s. They would go on to use it for the next 30 years for some shows you've heard of, like "What's My Line," uh-huh. the sixty-four thousand dollar question, "Password," mm-hmm. "Beat the Clock." The Jack Benny Show, Ted Mack's original Amateur Hour, which I've heard of, but I've never actually seen. Mm. And then probably one that you and I are super familiar with, Captain Kangaroo. You know what? For this podcast, I think we can resurrect the Ted Mack's original Amateur Hour. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, I think that fits. Okay, but like thinking about all of the shows that were made in this one space, like we were talking about this Parade of Weirdos when it was Studio 54, but it kind of sounds like there is a, it had, it had a good pedigree, right? Can you imagine what the break room was like when these shows were being filmed there? It reminds me of the cafeteria scene in Blazing Saddles. <laughs> yeah, 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 or or the two designers uh, HQ, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you're probably right. I would love to see like you know Jack Benny um, sharing Jello with Captain Kangaroo or whatever they did in their. Com- yep. They probably didn't have a commissary there, but anyway, um, who knows if they did? Um, so in 1976. Uh, here's here's where it starts to get a little interesting. CBS moved most of its broadcast functions to the Ed Sullivan Theater, which mm. we know of because of Late Night with David Letterman and um, now Stephen Colbert. Yep. And um, that that was literally just around the corner on Broadway between 53rd and 54th. And they also used the CBS Broadcast Center because it was huge. Too. Got it. Okay. So they, they sort of moved operations over to the mothership a little bit more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, they, they, they condensed the operations, basically. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, incidentally, I have a little interesting tidbit. I've been in the basement of the Ed Sullivan Theater, mm. and uh, they told me when I was there that the theater once had access to studio 52 slash studio 54 through an underground corridor and Mm -hmm. the the access door was cinder blocked uh during the theater's 1993 renovation for the late show with david letterman so it's like literally you could get passage you know underground from one to the other you could be on 54th street and then pop up and on broadway that's crazy so what was the purpose of this? Was this for like celebrities to be able to duck in and out? Was it, you know, for like the Beatles or Elvis or somebody to leave the theater and get to their car without being seen by a mob of crazy yeah, fans yeah. or I guess it could be. Yeah. Makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's almost like a speakeasy thing or something. Yeah, which that that's what I thought was super cool. It could be that Jackie Gleason actually used the underground to get to a um, neighboring bar without being seen. <laughs> that's that's in character. Yeah, that stands <laughs> up. I believe that. Literally, he would uh, take the corridor. They built a set of steps for him to go up into this bar. There was a trap door in the bar, and he would just, bing, appear. And, that's know, amazing. His, I love that. Have so his cocktails like and go back trick. down. To, <laughs> that's yeah, great. Yeah. yeah, so that truly is like a speakeasy. You know, yeah, I yeah. need to, we need to figure out a way to do that in our bar so we that do. I can order drinks and then leave when it comes time to pay. Okay, I, I'm not... I'm not sure I'm I'm uh, down with your theory there, but you, well, you, you had can, me you up know, until look, that you point. can you can stay. I'm not suggesting <laughs> yeah. you need to leave with me. In fact, it's probably preferable if you stay. I, I yeah, I, I get my role in this. To, um, yeah. Believe me, um, this is airtight as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but you know, you asked like, was it used for shuffling? celebrities around. Yeah, like, what was the original intent? Like, you don't just arbitrarily build a tunnel between two buildings. 
Right. Well, it was primarily used in a very unsexy way of mostly transporting equipment, tape machines, and and lights, you know, uh, from okay. one studio to the other. Sure. Um, so they wouldn't have to go all outside. Um, but in 1976, CBS sold Studio 52 to its most notorious owners, Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager. You've heard of them, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And they'd been running a club called Enchanted Garden in Queens. And the partners were were really, if you've seen any documentaries, you probably have heard this. They were a study in contradiction. Uh, Rubel was the outgoing social guy, the party planner. And Schrager was a serious, like, tough lawyer who got things done. Hmm. Hey, that's kind of like us, except without the uh, serious, tough guy uh, or the lawyer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. Um, but Enchanted Garden actually was wildly successful. Problem was, no one went to Douglaston, Queens. Yeah, not <laughs> a hot spot for the yeah, social yeah. I mean, milieu of the mid-70s. It, it was the hottest bar in Douglaston, Queens. Let's say that, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> but they set their eyes on Manhattan and a club uh, that, like no other, that they've ever seen. They wanted the dance floor to be a stage. They wanted everybody to be a celebrity, uh, you know, metaphorically, um, while they certainly had plenty of other celebrities. Uh, And they wanted a party of fabulous people every single night. Mm. So I'm definitely starting to see the crossover here with Warhol with this appealing to him, right? Everybody is a celebrity, a parade of interesting people coming in. Um, which reminds me, you know, speaking of wanting a party, huh? It looks like we're uh, we're out of champagne, and someone, <laughs> uh, not me, needs to do something about that. Uh, all right, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. I like that you <laughs> grasp my subtle hints. Yeah, yeah they are pretty subtle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Gotta tell you about another great show in the Evergreen Podcast family, Gen X Grown Up. Yeah, it's great. Every week, hosts John, Mo, and George live up to their motto, you have to grow older, but you don't have to grow up, by remembering and celebrating everything great about growing up in the 70s, the 80s, and the early 90s. Yeah, so they have two types of shows, and they alternate every other week. On their regular episodes, they discuss and review what's new in movies, TV, games, and technology through the eyes of Gen Xers. And on the alternate weeks are their backtrack episodes, where they dig in deep on a single nostalgic Gen X topic. And it's a whole range of stuff. Things like The Walkman. Mm, How about pizza arcades? Oh yeah, I love those. Delicious and fun. Movie yes. rental stores, Todd? We remember those. Yeah, not quite as delicious, but still fun. And bulletin board systems, do you remember those? Yeah, cork and thumbtacks, right? 
Maybe not exactly that. Oh, you mean like the War Games kind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. The Rubik's Cube? You remember the Rubik's Cube, Todd? I do remember the Rubik's Cube, as a matter of fact. I bet you solved that, like, you know, uh, in, in your sleep, didn't you? No, I attempted to solve it with a book and ended up solving it by pulling it apart and putting it back together. <laughs> <laughs> and... One of my favorites, action heroes. How about oh, that? yeah. You mean like Mr. Rogers? And Mr. Rogers is another good topic. And let's not forget something all Gen Xers are very familiar with, the mall experience. Do you remember when you and I had a mall experience after going to Mr. Dunderbox? Yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, we got to tell that story one day. We will. We will. We didn't get thrown out. No, we didn't. Okay. So, whether you're a Gen Xer or enjoy lighthearted and humorous looks at Gen X nostalgia, you've got to put Gen X grown up in your rotation. Yeah, and the show can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts like Two Designers Walk Into a Bar or right on their website at genxgrownup.com. Give them a listen. Hi. We want to take a moment to mention that if you're enjoying this episode, we have an archive of topics ranging from the Olympics to movie posters. Think Ghostbusters. Iconic images. Think Bigfoot. Punk music. The Ramones. Saturday morning cartoons. The Pink Panther. And failed products like OK Soda. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com for full episode notes and visuals, the latest blog content, and to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Find the links on our website or search using the phrase, Two Designers Walk Into a Bar. Most importantly, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people like you find podcasts like this. And tell a friend about us. Send them a link to our podcast from your listening platform of choice. And if you're inclined, buy our merchandise. Stickers, coasters, magnets, t-shirts. We're designers. We make good stuff and it helps support the show. Get in touch. Use the contact form on our website or send an email to hello at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. We read every message we get, honest. And we're available for speaking gigs. Email us to learn more. Okay, now, back to the bar. All right, Todd, thank you for the complimentary champagne. The bartender appreciates it. I appreciate it. (laughs) The listeners, I'm sure, also appreciate it, um, even though they can't be with us at the moment to partake. But uh, raise your glasses, listeners, to Todd's generosity. Yes, yes, please, please. All right, so we were talking a little bit about the formation of Studio 54. Uh, The opening night, as I said, was on April 26, 1977, and it was a huge success, thanks in part to friends like Andy, Calvin Klein, and photographer Francesco Scavulo, who contributed their mailing list to get things rolling. Oh, man. So Andy set aside his Christmas card list or whatever it was to get Studio 54 up and rolling. Uh, Okay, interesting. So he he sort of had a vested interest in its success, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was friends with uh, Stu Verbell. And on opening night, the club 
could actually had a capacity of 2,500, yet 4,000 people showed up. Holy smokes. So you know smokes. that was crazy. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so I can imagine it was a circus like we've talked about with so many things <laughs> yeah. involving Andy Warhol and a bunch of <laughs> hangers on and so forth. So got around the block people waiting to get in. You've got Liz Taylor inside, Truman Capote hanging mm-hmm. with a Tony Monero type <laughs> paint store guy and yeah. a and a hot dog vendor, right? So it's obviously Saturday a hot night dog fever. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, like obviously. it's a, it's a, yeah, it's Queens meets, you know, whatever. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. so it's really a cross section of New York in the mid seventies. Right. And bartenders, you know, wearing uh skimpy shorts or yeah. they were known to wear diapers. Yeah, as well, I was gonna so. say silver lame diapers if I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the mix of dancers at Studio 54, the ones that they attracted all the time, were like characters right out of central casting, man. They were celebrities, drag queens, working class people, such as the substitute teacher, practically nude, who just had a chain connecting her pierced nipples. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I ever had that substitute teacher when I was in school. Although I don't think she wore that to school. Yeah, I was going to say, reflecting back, I kind of wish I did. (laughs) And there were high-profile designers, socialites, royalty even, politicians, and even more celebrities. Uh, It was just... uh, I I mean, it was packed, like you said. It was a a freak parade. Yeah, which... Okay, this begs the question, because I thought this club was somewhat exclusive. I thought they sort of had their velvet rope policy and bouncers at the doors and all this stuff. Yeah, I think they actually started that whole velvet rope thing, and they were very selective. Um, Steve Rebell was very selective at the door. Okay. He was casting a party every night. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, Fabulosity wasn't just exclusive to famous people, and... Even for celebrities, it was not unusual to see uh, a banquet of stars like Liza Minnelli, Liz Taylor, Bianca Jagger, Grace Jones, Truman Capote, and, and Betty Ford just hanging out. <laughs> Wait, hold on a second. <laughs> One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, mean, I assume poor this, Betty is, Ford. Yeah, this is Betty Ford before the clinic days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were like, what do you want, Betty? Champagne, Coke, Quaaludes, whatever. Anything okay. you want. So the velvet rope sounds like time to time parted rather generously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so Andy Warhol actually said about the club that it was a dictatorship at the door, but a democracy on the dance floor. He was giving our friend Truman Capote a run for the bomb mods, wasn't he? Absolutely. And so he did have a number of connections, as you mentioned uh, earlier, to the club. Uh, He made drink ticket paintings for Truman. Uh, He gifted photos and a bronze sculpture to Steve Rebell. And he even put Steve Rebell on the cover of Interview Magazine. Um, in like 78, I believe. And, you know, like Andy, as usual, he brought along his Polaroid with him many nights. He shot pictures of celebrities. And actually, speaking of photos, in addition to him shooting hundreds, there were thousands of photos online of Andy with various celebrities at Studio 54. Right, right. 
But the naked substitute teacher was not among the celebrities? Did not see her. I, I only saw Andy hanging out with celebrities. But basically, the people he hung out with were the people that you would have seen a Warhol portrait of in the late 70s. Sure, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so, you know, given all the stuff we've learned about Andy and the factory, I thought this was really interesting, and it was obviously a different environment from his factory. He wasn't the ringleader at Studio 54. Right. There, he was a guest, like all others. Watching the cast of characters was endlessly entertaining to Andy, for both his art and just, you know, his voyeurism. Because after all, that's what he dug. You know, he dug watching people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like he reaped all the benefits without having to do any of the work, right? Yeah, he, he yeah, sort of, he yeah. gave out this list and then he let other people do the inviting and the buzz was built and then the people who showed up, he just sort of was able to kind of be, not in the shadows exactly, but just sort of be an observer yeah, and just, yeah. just watch all of these like collisions with all these different types of people. This is total speculation. Obviously, he was there a lot. Um, this was after the assassination attempt, of mm -hmm. course. Um, so, you know, he wasn't... Uh, the, the factory was not as open as it once was. That Even that concept of the factory was sort of going away. So I think he felt safe here. He felt safe in the crowd. Sure, and, sure. And it really fed, you know, his interest in just watching people be people. Okay, so you mentioned that there are all of these photos that are available online. We can find and post, uh, yeah. you know, some of these photos or post links to some of these photos to give listeners an idea of, again, you've named some names, but yeah, some of the yeah. different people who over the years um, showed up and, and hung out with Warhol. But mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. looking at all these photos, what did you notice in these in all of mm -hmm. even the photos that, mm -hmm. that didn't include Warhol, right? There's, mm -hmm. again, we've talked about Andy Warhol being one of the most documented, you know, and self-documented and documented artists. I would say Studio 54, you know, there are a lot of clubs that would have a policy where they didn't want you taking pictures. They didn't want oh, yeah. cameras in there, yeah. right? Especially in yeah. the 70s when there's a lot, you know, a lot of debauchery happening, right? Like this is where people went to fly their uh, freak flag right so yeah yeah so it's kind of interesting that they allowed photographers and that you know it was all it was more about making a scene right and like well, seeing and being seen a little bit let me interject something really quick that i've i've um sort of pieced together from reading uh some of the stories okay but they had a like press was not allowed at sure, Studio sure, sure. 54 i mean they would have photographers that they hired or whatever so um Officially, press was not allowed, but Steve Rebell, being Steve Rebell, would invite them if he knew certain celebrities were showing up that night. Right. And, you know, obviously it made Studio 54 look great. If a celebrity complained, um, like, oh, Steve, uh, can you get uh, the press is here? Like, can we do something about that? He would, I'm doing air quotes, he would 
um, officially asked them to leave then, although he had invited. <laughs> so right, he, you know, right, he, right. he was really smart, right? When you think yeah, about it's it, all, it's all publicity. It's all just part of the marketing machine. So right. thinking about, okay, so he's inviting the press in at times. Hell, who knows? Probably some of these people were bringing hangers on in to take their pictures, right? right? right, right. I mean, you think about celebrity culture today, and really this is just what's happening now with like TMZ or whatever is just like mm-hmm. a regurgitation mm-hmm. of what was happening, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So, in all of these photos, what did you notice? Like, were there any through lines in all of these photos, Mm. especially the Mm -hmm. ones with Andy Warhol in them? Yeah, that's a great question, Elliot. So, I I literally dug through thousands of photos um, because there are more, you know, tens of thousands uh, online um, with Andy Warhol in them. And... It, it, it obviously is people partying and you see uh, all that people drinking, you know, hugging like you do in a club. Um, but there were three things that I, I kind of came to um, that helped me understand um, uh, Andy Warhol's personality even more. So hmm. uh, the first one is he's always wearing a jacket and tie. And he's looking like the least creative artist there, or even, you know, maybe the most creative accountant in the crowd, but always a jacket and tie. What do you attribute that to? I, you know, I, I don't know because it wasn't commonplace for everyone else. Um, I, and I, he, it wasn't like he was dressing to stand out because it was, it was like he was dressing to be mediocre even mm-hmm. so so i don't know um but that was something that i noticed he was always dressed with a jacket and tie um the second thing is there are tons of pictures involving groups of celebrities right and the majority of these photos if there's a conversation andy is looking away like literally in the opposite direction it looks almost staged if you will and if he is involved in a conversation, he is always being talked to or at. You know, he's not necessarily participating in the conversation. So, who, who is so? It's with photos like this. It's just these roving photographers who are going around Studio yeah. Fifty Four. Yeah. So it's not like, or maybe it could be because he wasn't engrossed in these conversations. He yeah. was the one person who knew when the picture was about to be taken, and so he was able to kind of be contrarian about it. Yeah, you know, I, I think it was I think it was very staged. I think it was part of his um, aloof personality. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, there you know, there's obviously some where he's in conversation or you know he's being talked to, but for the most part. Um, he is looking away, looking up, looking off the camera, hmm. just, you know, not uh, like awkward, right? Yeah, or maybe something along the lines of like, yeah, I'm deeply involved in this, but I'm also outside of it or I'm also better than it. Yeah, 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 maybe so. The third thing, which was probably um, the most insightful thing that I gathered um, from all these photos is. He rarely touches anyone. It's so it's been pretty well documented that he disliked the physical contact of sex. He had lots of boyfriends, but not a lot of physical expression of love. Right? <laughs> well, maybe he just didn't have the right music. Ma- yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. He needed the the summer of what 
54, whatever whatever the song was we referenced in one of our previous episodes uh, that, that you liked. Oh, the, the um, uh, yeah, the, what is it, the Perry Como song or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, song yeah. from Animal House? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it, yeah. But that lack of contact, it shows up with him at Studio 54 because there was plenty of pictures with celebrities having their arms around Andy. Um, there's a famous one of Debbie Harry from Blondie. She's swigging a bottle of champagne. Mm-hmm. Um, got her arm wrapped around him. Steve Rebell and Brooke Shields and Calvin Klein are smiling. They're in this conversation. They're kind of huddled and hugging. Big smiles, arms around each other. And Andy is literally standing with his hands clasped in front of him, just staring at the camera. Like, <laughs> you know, like a death stare. Like, like you know, his... Like it's it it is almost like he was the least person aware there was a camera until the last minute. But I think it's the exact uh, you opposite. Know, yeah, I mean, to me, it's sort of like this painting, like this classical, like Bacchanal kind of painting, and then he's sort of violating that scene and breaking down the fourth wall, looking right at the viewer. Yeah, yeah. He's like the usher in the museum. Like, can you check this shit out? Yeah, yeah. that oddly plays into, you know, his whole approach to art. Yeah. It was like making regular everyday people doing everyday things seem, you know, really famous. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, there are only two photos that I found, literally, you know, out of a thousand, where Andy is being more touchy and... Uh, one uh, has his arm around this incredibly beautiful woman named uh, Monique Van Vuren. Uh, and it's, it's a giant hug he's giving her. And his right hand is, is going across her body, even kind of cupping her breast. And his face is literally inches from hers. And he is staring beautifully in her eyes. Like, he looks like he's so in love with her. And later in the series, he's even kissing her, kind of on the lips. It's like she may have turned her head a little bit at the last minute, but he's kissing her, right? Yeah, so she must have been someone really special to get him out of his shell. Yeah. If she is as beautiful as you say she was, um, I mean, he's... I mean, one thing we can agree on is he was always like a a sucker for beauty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't you say that one of the types of people he loved to have in the factory are people who are beautiful? Right, right. And turns out um, there was actually a little bit of a connection with Monique. Um, She was a Belgian-born beauty queen. Say that five times fast. I know, I know. I had to do that really slow. Um, And she was an actress, and she appeared in kind of C-level productions, such as Tarzan and the She-Devil, and Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, which uh, he produced in 74. Uh, In more well-known productions, she had minor, minor parts, even some uncredited, um, such as, you know, one of my all-time favorite TV shows, Batman. Mm. She played Miss Clean, um, and she was uncredited. And then in later years, she had a bit part in uh, the movie Wall Street as, uh, you're probably familiar with her work, Woman at 21. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, she is incredibly beautiful, and he is clearly digging her. Um, The second one where Andy is initiating contact is a bit out of character. He is kissing John Lennon on the cheek in 1978. Mm. 
And so Andy, John and Andy were friends. Sean Lennon even said in a Rolling Stone interview that uh, growing up without a father, Andy was like this eccentric uncle to me. Uh, he taught me a lot about art and humor. And, you know, I'm like, okay, that's good. But, you know, he's close to other people. He wasn't kissing either. I mean, John Lennon had the irresistible pull of just celebrity, right? Like that magnetism, I think. Yeah, that was that was pretty untouchable because even with other celebrities of his time, you know, Liz Taylor, mm-hmm. um, Liza Minnelli, they were probably still not regarded in the same way as John yeah, Lennon no, was. Definitely not. Yeah. So, you know, while being sweet and generous, uh, he remained awkward in crowds. And there's even speculation uh, he was on the spectrum a bit. Mm-hmm. Yet that that was never diagnosed. But um, that sort of awkwardness, um, a lot of people think it was an act. And I really. Uh, as we talked about, you know, earlier in this series, Raggedy Andy right. and, you know, carrying his work in a brown paper bag, that, you know, he certainly wasn't acting then. So I think that was how he felt comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It would, for that to be an act, that would be a lot of work over a very long That'd be a lot. That'd be so tiring. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, that's like Andy Kaufman on steroids. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. So, in kind of wrapping this up, um, I think everyone knows in early 1980, the party for Studio 54 came to an abrupt ending with a raid, uh, prison time for both Rubel and Schrager on charges of tax evasion. Mm. Let's, let's make sure we keep our eyes on all the doors in the bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you have to make money to to, to evade taxes oh, first, yeah. don't you? Well, they ain't going to make money from us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what did Andy do with his time after that? So Studio 54 shuts down. The factory now is a shadow of what it once was. And this had been Andy's stimulation, his sort of social hub. So he gets jettisoned out of... Studio 54. I mean, he was alive for another seven years. Yeah, true. And I would say he he focused on the art of business. Mm. He uh, he continued to make celebrity portraits that everyone has seen of his friends and and patrons um, at about twenty thousand a pop. Interview Magazine, um, you know, was really kicking. Uh, and then he worked on the series of screen prints. The Myths series, mm-hmm. you know, with Howdy Doody and Santa Claus. Uh, the Endangered Species series. Ten Jews of the 20th century. All those were around that time. And, of course, he collaborated with Jean-Michel Basquiat. Mm. Yep. As, as you said, like, up to his sudden death in his sleep on February 27th in 87, he was recovering from routine gallbladder surgery. And it's pretty well documented he produced over 9,000 paintings Jeez. and sculptures and nearly 12,000 drawings, according to the Warhol Foundation. Wow. And, you know, popularity hasn't waned in all these years. According to Art Price's Art Market Report, Warhol is number one out of 500 artists mm-hmm. for auction turnover. So, you know, that means uh, as the work comes up, it keeps earning more and more. So, 
with um, 2022 being the highest year ever for Warhol sales at $516 million. And a big part of that, which, by the way, was for one of his Marylands. Uh, it was for the sale of Sage Blue Maryland from 1964, the most expensive contemporary single artwork ever sold at an auction, if you can believe. Yeah, I have two... Um two comments about that. So the first one is, um, apparently there's a family, and the name is escaping me. We can post a link to an article um, on our Mm -hmm. episode page. There is apparently one family that owns over a thousand Warhols, I believe. And they basically have cornered the market. And so they Mm. will only release a Warhol on the open market when they know it can fetch like these massive increases at at auction and it's to the point where basically like andy warhol is the essentially the like the stock index for modern art like they gauge yeah yeah as a whole how the market is doing based on how individual warhols do so there's yeah there's a very interesting backstory about that that we can post about um yeah but on a slightly lighter note, mm-hmm. you mentioned Sage Blue Maryland. And um, mm-hmm. thinking back to our cocktail earlier at our, our break during the episode, I think, mm-hmm. you know, Sage Blue Maryland would be a wonderful cocktail that you should ask the bartender to make for us. Your treat, of course. Uh, oh, yeah, you had me up until then again. Well, I have to sneak out through the trap door. <laughs> That's right. Ta- the tax uh, yeah. evading lawyers or, or, or and into the police neighboring are building. <laughs> That's right. And just pop out on Broadway yeah. oh, somewhere. Oh, here I right? am. Just in time to catch <laughs> oh, my here cab. I am. Look. <laughs> <laughs> I was just doing the hustle right down the block, and here I am. Yeah, that old Irish goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a wonderful, uh, delicious drink, the Sage Blue Maryland. So let's leave it there and uh, until next time. Thanks, everybody. And I'm Joe, and and we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show, or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.